This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now, today, uh, I wanted to make you aware of an event that we have coming up next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, we have the Vortex Church Family Prom. Uh, This is a huge party for us. Some of y'all might be thinking, why would a church throw a party? Why would you throw a party? Well, the reason we throw a party is because we like the party. It's just that simple. You like the party, we all like the party. All right, the thing about a party is a party gives us a chance to be around each other, and to do what Jesus commanded in John 13, where Jesus said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Think about that. It's impossible to love one another if we're not around one another. All right, so we need to be around each other to experience the love that is connected to being a one another. And tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but this coming Sunday night is a chance for us to join together at the prom. All right, we'd love to do that. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, God began to impress upon my heart the opportunity uh, that we have each Sunday to pray together. How many of y'all know that we uh, are one church and there are other churches in our community? Right. There are other good churches in our community. So glad that you chose to be with us today. But there are other really good churches. And, and we need other good churches because Stanley County is about 65,000 people. There are only about 165 churches. At best guess, there are 15 or 20,000 people that are in church on a Sunday. That means about 40,000 people are not in church. It's important. People need to be in a part of a life-giving church family, it forces in our hearts and in our lives a spiritual conversation that many of us just don't want to have. And I'm so thankful for my friends, uh, Ron and Kelly Laughlin. They, they pastor together at uh, a church that's called URA Community Church. It, it, it used to be East Albemarle Baptist, and it became High Rock. And through a series of events, it ended up becoming uh, what we know today as URA Community Church. I love Ron. Ron has the premier pastor's heart. He loves people so well. He serves people so well. Only somebody with his giftedness could have navigated a group of people through the kind of situations that they've went through. And so I'm thankful to be in a city that's got other pastors like Ron and like his wife Kelly. We love them and we love their girls. And so I'd like to take a moment and pray for them as we get started today. God, we thank you for Ron Laughlin. We thank you for URA Community Church. And we just pray blessings over him and his wife, Kelly, and their daughters. We pray, God, that you would protect their hearts and provide for their family. God, we pray for their church. We pray, God, for uh, a new purpose and a new sense of of power that would come from you and the the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would bring healing and restoration in the walls of that church and through the people of that church. And God, that you would move in a way that restores lives and do it all for your glory to build the kingdom of God in this city. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, we're in a series called Afterlife, where we're asking the question, what happens after this life? And 
The truth is, is that many of us don't like that, that question. We run away from that question. We don't like to lean into that question. But for four weeks, we're going to lean into it. We started last week by asking the question, what happens when we die? And today, I'm going to talk about home. Now, as a mom, it's probably nothing that occupies your time other than your kids like your home. Really, as families, there's no resource-driven dri- um, kind of possession like our home. Uh, the majority of our money is spent on our home. Our time is spent in our home. Our time is spent preparing and cleaning our home. Homes are important, and I think it's important to think about what a home represents. See, for some of us, a home is a place of comfort. You ever been on a vacation? I mean like a really nice vacation. You go to a really nice resort. You walk into your room, and you're like, wow, look at this. That happened to anybody before? You ever, done, you ever been there before? And then you're there for like two days and you're like, I'm ready to go home. This bed is nicer than my bed at home. This room is nicer than my room at home. But there's something about being at home. There's some comfort that comes with being at home. Home is a place of comfort. Number two, home is a place of safety. And we know that safety is one of our highest needs. We need it. Uh, psychologists and sociologists would place it as probably the most important need that we have. But home is a place of safety. Not only do the walls protect us from the outside and from the rain and all that sort of thing, but home is a place where we can be ourselves and be safe. Some of y'all have dance parties with your kids. You ain't ever going to dance in public, but you dance at home because it's safe, Right? Nobody else is seeing what's happening, right? Home is a place of safety. Number three, home is a place of acceptance. That's why we can dance, because people know us, and they know we're a little bit crazy, but they love us anyway. They receive us and accept us anyway. Isn't that the great thing about our kids? They'll see us at our worst moment. In the next few hours, they'll tell us that they love us. One of the most beautiful pictures of love that we ever see. We get to do that to them too, don't we? Clean that ugly diaper. How did that come out of something so small? How did that much stuff come out of you? And then we clean them up and then just a few hours later they look at us in that way. We're like, oh, you got me. You got me. I clean your diapers all forever. How long it takes. Right? Right, because home is a place of acceptance. And home is ultimately a place of love. It's a place of love. A place of unconditional love. A place where we are loved completely. As we're known completely. It's powerful. I think this is why, in its truest sense, homelessness is so very (sighs) tragic. Because it represents someone who is lost all of those things. I mean, in its truest sense, a refugee or a a country or a group of people that have been completely displaced out of their homes, this is why this is such a tragedy. Because home is so important. I remember when I was in college, a friend of mine went home for a break, came home, we were sat down to eat and said, how you doing? He said, I'm not doing so good. When I went home, while I was home, my, my, my family's house burned down. It's burned, burned, complete and total loss. Everything burned. He said, you know, it's just one of those 
tragic moment. So we're trying to ask questions. And his older brother was a, a standout uh, college athlete. And the, the family's identity was kind of wrapped around that. His, his brother's trophy sat on the, the mantle. And he said, you know, I remember walking through the rubble and we walked to where the, the fireplace used to be. And there were all my brother's trophies just melted, totally destroyed. There, my parents were in the background whispering, we, we can get new ones, we can get new ones, we can get new rings, we can get new trophies. And he said, I just remember thinking in my heart, there's got to be more than, to home than this. If it can be taken this quickly, there's got to be more to home than this. And the idea of home really begins at the very beginning of our story in Genesis chapter 2, where the Bible records this, Then God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man he had just made in it. And for the rest of Scripture, for the rest of time, our home is going to be referenced as the Garden of Eden. God made perfection, put us in perfection, and provided all we would ever need in perfection. God made us a home. Then he made us and put us in it. But you know the story. Sin entered as they disobeyed the one rule that God had given them. How many of y'all like just one rule? I would like that. I mean, I'd, I'd go for that deal. Don't eat that fruit. Okay, I'm good. I can do that, right? But apparently they couldn't. And I think the lesson for us is that we couldn't either. That if it were all boiled down to one simple rule, we couldn't follow it either. Because you remember the temptation of the devil. The temptation was that if you do this, you will be like God because that's exactly what the temptation of sin is today. The temptation of sin is that we would step back and look at God's ways and say, no, God, I know better than you. No, I will be like God knowing what is right and wrong and I will determine what is right and wrong. And that entered the world and it entered our hearts and it broke life as life was designed. And in Genesis 3, the consequences of sin begin to eat, kind of seep into the story of creation. In Genesis 3, 23, it re records this. So God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they had been made. Which shows us this very important truth that every human has been made for a home that they've lost. Every human has been made for a home that they've lost. You were made for a home that you lost. Through sin and rebellion, you were no longer allowed to live in that home. And there is something inside of you that longs for that home. I think that's why 1 Peter 2 encourages us this way. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. It's not our home. This is not our place of long-term residence. Just as a reminder today, someday somebody else is going to live in your house. Someday somebody's going to paint your walls a different color. Someday somebody's going to move their own furniture in there. All those things that we think we own, we don't own. They are temporary. As a matter of fact, this has been a foundation for philosophy for as long as philosophers have tried to understand life. Even Karl Marx, the founder 
of socialism and later communism. Karl Marx would say it's impossible to understand life if you don't understand that this world is temporary. You see, our homes are temporary and point us to a greater need. And that's not just our homes that we live in, but you realize that your home right now, your body, is a home to your soul. And it is temporary. And it points us to a greater need. So to kind of sum all that up in several points, number one, we have all sinned, and sin has kicked us out of our home. Some of y'all might not like that. You might be sitting there thinking, I, I'm a pretty good guy. I treat my wife with dignity. I take care of my kids. I'm not doing anything wrong, Kevin. I'm not a sinner. Well, the Bible makes it clear that not only am I a sinner, but you are a sinner. In Romans 3, where the Bible says that all have sinned, all means everyone have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes all of us. We've all sinned, and that sin kicked us out of the home, which means, number two, sin has left us homeless with a nagging need for something more than this. And some of you have great homes. You have great jobs. Your bank accounts look great. Your retirement accounts look, and your portfolios look amazing. But there's still this nagging need on the inside for something more. We kind of see that echoed in the story that's told in the New Testament. It's called the rich young ruler. It's actually told in three of the four Gospels. And this is how it begins. Look at this. Mark 10. This is a very wealthy man. A man ran up to him, to Jesus, and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I've got a good life. I've got all that money could buy. But I don't have what you have. So what must I do to have that? Jesus? What must I do to be rescued? See, the thing is, is that today God wants to rescue you. Some of you have lost the life that God wants for you today. And I want you to know that today that God's design is that He would rescue you from that. From your walking away from your rebellion that God wants to rescue you out of that. He wants to bring you back home into a relationship with himself. We kind of see a picture of this in Jeremiah 31. There's something that has happened. The Babylonian Empire has displaced Israel. They've attacked Israel, they've sacked the city of Jerusalem, and they've taken its people into captivity. And so Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 is prophesying about this condition. It begins, or the portion that we're going to look at begins in verse 15 where he says, this is what the Lord says, a cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. Now Ramah is important, the city that's mentioned there. It's actually a very loaded term. The Babylonians used Ramah as a staging station. The people who were taken into slavery in Israel were transported to Ramah where they were then sold to slave traders and dispersed all throughout the empire. So Ramah was a place of great weeping as children were literally ripped out of the arms of mothers and placed into the hands of slave traders to be sent who knows where. 
And in this passage, God is saying, I hear the weeping. Now, it's not just really that. Because this is referencing a moment that happened in Genesis chapter 35. Where Jacob, if you remember Jacob, he was kind of a cheater, stole the blessing from his dad, is estranged from his brother Esau. He's reconciled with Esau. And in Genesis 35, he's on his way home to kind of move his family back. But his wife, Rachel, who's referenced in that moment, his wife Rachel is pregnant. And she, it comes time for her to have the baby. And so in the, the travels that they're encountering, they stop in Ramah, in the town of Ramah, where she has the baby under great distress. We know that it was under great distress because Rachel is going to lose her life in childbirth to give birth to her son, Benjamin. If you think about this principle, it's so true that no child is given life without their mother losing theirs. No child. I mean, it begins initially because something starts growing inside of you. You don't even have a choice about it. All of a sudden, there it is, growing in your belly. And you don't get to decide how it grows or when it grows. God's really in charge of all of that. But your body, your body is going to show it afterwards. There are many women who, really, if we're honest with you, they struggle through the fact that they have given up what was their youthful body for now the body of a mom. There's no child who comes into life without a mother losing theirs, and then it becomes nights of just sleeplessness as your child needs to be fed and changed and fed and changed and fed and comforted and changed and fed. And they're sick and they need medicine and they're sick and they're sick and they're sick and they're fed, and you just lose your life. And then it becomes kids that need to go to ball practice and need to go to dance practice and need to go to this place and this place and this place and go to school and do homework. And all of a sudden, you're losing your life doing all of that. And then it's teenage years where they can drive, but now all of a sudden, you're staying up late again, but you're not staying up late because you have to. You're staying up late because you're scared, right? Some of y'all have lived through this before. There's no child that gains life without a mother losing theirs. But look at what God says in the next verse, verse 16. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. I want you to know today, some of you are struggling because some of your kids have wandered away from exactly the kind of person you know God has called them to be. You see it in them, you believe it for them, but they've wandered away from it. I want you to know that there's a promise in there that they will return that they will return. Verse 17, there is a hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. There is hope. Even when it seems it's darkest and it's most lost, that there is hope. And the hope lies in who God is and how God rescues us and the rescue that He is performing in our lives. And He goes on to explain that in the next few verses, in verse 18 and 19, where He says, I have heard Israel saying, so I've heard my children saying this. You have disciplined me severely. Now, how many of y'all like disciplining your kids? None of us. 
All right, it is not fun to put a four-year-old in timeout. It takes constant monitoring because they have no idea how long five minutes is. Like 15 seconds in, they're like, am I done? No, you are not done. As a matter of fact, now it's 15 minutes. They have no idea. You could say 15 minutes, do six minutes. They don't even know, right? Because it's hard work to discipline a kid. It's easy to not discipline them, but it's not good for them. Look at what God says here. As he's recounting what the children of Israel have said. You discipline me severely like a calf that needs training for a yoke. Like a calf that needs training. You're training me to carry something. You're, you're disciplining me for a purpose. Hebrews would tell us that God doesn't just discipline us. He disciplines those that he loves. So turn me again to you. This is why you did this. To turn me again to you. And restore me, for you alone are my Lord, my God. I turned away from my God, but then I was sorry. I kicked myself for my stupidity, and I was thoroughly ashamed of all that I did in my younger days. So God hears this, and then he says this. Is Israel still not my son, my darling child? I have often had to punish him, but I still love him. How many of y'all know that's true, right? I got I to gotta spank their bus a lot, but I still love them anyway, right? That's why I long for him. And I surely will have mercy on him. I want you to know today that many of us, for us, home represents family. And maybe today your family is in a situation, in a season where it feels a little lost. I want you to know that it is on God's heart and on God's mind. And God wants relationships to be restored. He wants kids to come home. He wants parents to turn their hearts to God. He wants to see it all. He wants homes to be restored. But that's not really the end of the story. Because as the prophecy is fulfilled, the children of Israel come back into Israel. They come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the city, reoccupy it. Obviously, Jeremiah is speaking to something that's even bigger. And it begins with the birth of Jesus. You remember the wise men come to visit Jesus and they seek Herod out. They go find Jesus and they worship him, right? But they don't return to tell Herod where he is because Herod is worried about losing his crown. There's a new king in town. It's Jesus. And so the scripture tells us this. Pay attention to this. Herod was furious. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or older or young or under based on what the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So Herod's brutal action, pay attention to the, what the writer Matthew says. Herod's Brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah. This is Bethlehem. Weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. You see, God has begun something. And he says, in the same way as the recovery of our homes... Our earthly homes began with the story of Rachel's tears. There's something that's happening right now as God says the fulfillment of that happened in this moment. As Jesus is forced to flee with his family, he becomes homeless. He becomes an exile. He becomes a refugee fleeing to Egypt. And we see this reality that the rescue of our earthly homes 
isn't the final and full rescue of our true home. Let's think about what home means. Because I think it's important if we're going to talk about rescue and redemption, what God wants to do in our homes and what God is doing in our true home, the home that we have all lost. We need to understand what homes provide. Homes for us today do something powerful in our heart. Because we desire comfort. And by comfort, I don't mean just a place to lay our head that's comfortable. I mean, we desire peace. And we desire to live in an environment of peace. That we were designed for and made for. Number two, we need safety. We need it. As a matter of fact, sociologists would say it's the highest form of need that we have personally. We need safety. And that's not just safety from the elements outside. We need safety where we are eternally protected. We know that we flourish in acceptance. Where who we are and the person that we were made to be is affirmed and desired and encouraged. We flourish in acceptance and we are designed for love. Designed for love. Those components of what home is all about. You see, when we recognize that this world is not our home, then we'll finally have the guts to see that the aspects of home that we just discussed can never fully be found in this life. They can never fully be found in this life. So let's go back to the story. Jesus is exiled to Egypt. He returns later as an older child. He moves back to Nazareth where he is a child of a carpenter, a child of somebody who's not in great affluence. He grows up and begins a ministry. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, but throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus remains homeless. He has no home. He goes from city to city, from community to community, finally landing in Jerusalem. And if you pay attention to the Scriptures, when He comes home to Jerusalem, which is the home He created for Himself, He weeps over it because of its condition. So Jesus teaches us a lot about our true home. He does it in John 14, probably Uh, one of the simplest teachings on our true home. Look at this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. If this were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. Would I have told you that? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. I want to deconstruct that for you so that you can see a little bit more about the home that we've all lost. Because every human has lost a home that they were designed for. Number one, we need to realize that the rescue comes when we fully trust Jesus with everything. The rescue begins when we fully trust Jesus with everything. Notice how he begins the passage. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, but trust also in me. See, the problem with many of our lives is that we're not trusting God and we're not trusting God with not just eternity. How can we trust God with eternity if we can't trust Him with right now? You notice how He began it all? Don't let your hearts be worried. You know what I've noticed? Is that our hearts will always be troubled when we trust ourselves first. Our hearts will always be troubled when we trust ourselves and our perspective and our knowledge and our thoughts and the way that we think things should go and the people that we trust and the way that we think things are. When we trust that first, our hearts will always be troubled. So it begins, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Number two, our home is in our Father's house. Where we are with Jesus. That's why he says, there are many rooms in my Father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you will always be with me. Eternally, Jesus is pointing us towards heaven. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to talk about what eternity looks like. Because many of us, if we're honest, it's a tension that we've lived with and we've ran away from it instead of leaning into it. We're going to lean into it as a church and ask the questions and look into the Bible and ask, what do you say, God, about what eternity looks like? But we know that our home, the home that we were made for, that we've lost, is in our Father's house. Jesus died so that we could be with Him and live in that home. Number three, when we accept this, we'll live drastically different lives. It means that when you come home and you walk into your kid's room and they got out the permanent markers and started coloring on the wall. Y'all been there before, right? You know what I'm talking about. We approach that moment a little bit different when we realize that this world it's not our home. One day somebody's going to live in this house. It's not me. One day somebody's going to paint this wall a different color. I can treat this moment differently because I'm going to honor my kids. I'm going to love them. I'm not going to love our home more than I love my kids. Because this world is not my home. It teaches us to treat each other differently. Because there are some people that, if you're honest, you have a hard time with them. But this world is not your home, and one day you're going to go to a house, you're going to have to live in a house with them. And so maybe it's time to say, I forgive you, get past some hurts and pains. It causes us to treat the stuff that we have differently, where we realize that we are just stewards not owners and we can look at God and say God thank you for blessing us I just want to do with what you have given me what you have planned for this to accomplish God just show me what to do with your stuff I hold it with an open hand because this world is not my home and lastly I don't know if you noticed this but Jesus ends that passage by saying and you will know the way to where I'm going you'll know the way the way is real simple. 
is Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He gave up his life, laid aside heaven so that he could come to earth and bear our penalty so that we could live in eternity with him. Because there was no way to overcome the separation and the chasm that had been created by our sin. There was no way to recover home outside of a sacrifice. And so the one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in God. All right. The way home is Jesus. That nagging feeling in your heart that says this is not enough it's not pointing you to a bigger home it's not pointing you to a better car it's not pointing you to a padded bank account it is pointing you to Jesus because he is the way home thanks for listening this podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle North Carolina for more information on our church we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com